This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This is DSC's Untamed Heritage. DSC's Untamed Heritage is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club. Conservation, education, protecting hunters' rights. Ruger. Rugged, reliable firearms. Hardity. Accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon. Brilliant aiming solutions. Burnham Brothers Calls. Calling us calls made. Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas Raised Hunting Products. The Scent Gods. www.trailingthehuntersmoon.com The Hunter Conservation Website. Looks like we're about kind of hitting out of some of this COVID-19 thing. There's still a bunch of hanger-on things going on. And kind of as we hit into May, hopefully things will start going in the right direction. Uh, still have to be careful no matter what we do. It, it's one of those things to where probably in the future it's going to be a little different than it has been in the past, particularly for guys like me who have been around for a while and kind of gone when we wanted to, went where we wanted to, kind of did what we wanted to in terms of travel, and sometimes maybe not being all that careful in terms of health conditions that are out there. I remember going to Africa numerous times in years past and going in some of these areas that were close to the Ebola virus and, you know, kind of thought, well, man, it could happen, but uh, really probably not going to. And got into areas where... Malaria was pretty prevalent and took all the malaria shots and over the years had a few friends that ended up with things like tick fever and a, and a few other things like that because of the fact that they were in Africa. But life has to go on and what I'll be doing in the next oh, several months is, is being really careful and occasionally wearing a face mask, a bandana if you will. I, I grew up wearing bandanas and watched all the bad guys on TV and the silver screen many years ago put on a bandana before they went out to rob banks or, the, <laughs> or to, uh, to do something bad like rob a stagecoach. But it's become a way of life. The same thing, I'll be carrying a fair amount of, uh, I'm sure, of disinfectant and hand sanitizer and those things. And of course, 
still be doing some social distancing and kind of be, I know with hunting seasons coming on, we're not that far away when you get right down to it. I've been fortunate. I've been able to spend a little bit of time on my property, social distancing, if you will, where we've been building fence to keep cattle out of certain areas that I want to try to reintroduce some browse species into or just let some of the browse species that are there naturally come back. Try to prevent some of the uh, erosion of, of cattle being inside the little creek bottoms that we have on the property and kind of keep them out of there and kind of let vegetation come back. Now, I'm not opposed to by any means of, of grazing because I'm a big proponent of how important grazing is these days by livestock on these properties where you do manage for wildlife because if, for no other reason to keep the grass covered down to where there is room for, for forbs or weeds to grow. And, and also the hoof action that occurs with cattle on property creates a nice little seed bed. That's one of the things that the buffalo did many, many years ago is as they roamed across the country, they ate the vegetation down and green growth came back and weeds came in. And, and at the same time, they created a whole lot of hoof action to where there were a little seed bed. And every, whenever it rained, those things filled up with water. So not all that different when you get right down to it these days. The difference is, I suspect, is rather than having oh, buffalo that weighed about 2,000 pounds and are shaggy now, we've got cattle that weigh about 1,000 pounds and and have an opportunity to eat some of their beef, which I'm a lover of, of really good beef, to be very frank with you. I love my white-tailed deer, and I love the venison, and I love the fish and the wild game that we have available to us. But I, I admit, I, I really do enjoy a good beef steak, or a very nice marbled ribeye cooked over some really hot coals, and really kind of hard to beat. So all this kind of plays into kind of where I want to go with this particular podcast, and in terms that we got to be careful moving into the future, what we do, how we do things, and what's been the norm in the past will probably not be the norm moving into the future. But there's so many great outdoor opportunities out there for us in terms of, of hunting, in terms of outdoors, in terms of fishing. We're hitting into a time frame right now where if you live in Texas like I do, being blessed in that fact, we've got a tremendous number of exotics that have made their home now in Texas. A lot of them were introduced in the early 1900s and they're, say, up to about 1930 or so, and they were behind high fences. A lot of those fences washed out over a period of time, and animals such particularly as the Axis deer and the Audad and some of the sheep species that are out there, the psycho deer, fallow deer, even some areas elk and red stag have, have escaped from these areas and are now pretty well populating different parts of free range country, if you will. Now there are negatives to all this because they do compete with white-tailed deer and mule deer and, and in far west Texas, all that compete with desert bighorn sheep and so there is some competition there, and, and that's kind of the cursed side of having exotics. The blessed side of having exotics is is that as we head into the springtime when all the other seasons are closed, that's really the best time to hunt axis deer. It's a fabulous time to hunt guy that you find down in the lower lower part of Texas. We kind of refer to it as a king ranch country. All dad and out the far west Texas have, have really taken over in certain areas there, and they too can be hunted year-round. Black buck antelope, same way, have horns year-round. 
Fallow deer and, and psychic deer are a little bit more seasonal in terms of antlers in that they're very close in terms of antler development cycle as to what our white-tailed deer are. The axis deer is different. Not too very long ago, I called a friend of mine, Greg Simons. Greg is, owns wildlife systems and probably, no, not probably. That, that's the best hunting organization there is anywhere in the state of Texas when it comes to native game or exotic species as well. It's a... Uh, Greg is a, is a wildlife biologist by trade. I've known him since he got into the industry many, many years ago. He's very much a conservationist. And the fact that for years he's been involved with our Texas Wildlife Association, served as the president of the Texas Wildlife Association. Now, currently also, besides running a, a really outstanding outfitting and guide business, he's also the president of the Texas Wildlife Foundation which kind of administered funds to a different project that TWA is involved with, Texas Wildlife Association. I kind of serve as a counterpart on some of that. Going back, well, I really was kind of one of the three founders of the Texas Wildlife Association, but along the way, too, I got involved with DSC, and, and these days, among being very proudly a, a life member of Dallas Safari Club, or DSC, also serve on the DSC Foundation, which takes money that comes in from various sources, and we take that money and it's distributed to a lot of different worthwhile projects, both in Africa and some of the other countries, and of course here in, in North America as well, too. Uh, it's DSC, it's DSCF.org, or uh, if you're looking at the Texas Wildlife Association, it's TEX slash, I'm sorry, dash Texas, TEX dash uh, wildlife. Dot org. So both those organizations do an extremely good job. TWA here in Texas, DSC here in North America and in other parts of the world. But Greg has been very much involved with TWA and as a wildlife biologist started as a hunting operation, the wildlife systems, my gosh, probably 25 or so years ago, kind of lost track, maybe, maybe longer than that come think of it because I've been hunting with him a long long time his website is wildlifesystems.com now I, I bring it up and I'll probably tell you about it again because that's where you want to go if you're interested in trying to get away from things for a while perfect social distancing for the springtime as soon as you're allowed to travel if you're kind of quarantined if you are into the houses but uh, some of that I think it's starting to lift now but Greg's a guy that you really want to talk to if you'd like to come to Texas and hunt such species as Axis deer and Nilgai antelope and, and Audat sheep. I want to talk a little bit today, particularly, <clears throat> excuse me, about Axis deer. Axis deer are originally from India. They're also called the Chital, C-H-I-T-A-L deer. In India, they lived in the same areas where you find the... Um, the tiger and for the most part they were the primary prey species for the Bengal tigers or the tigers that existed in India and in that part of the world. They're interesting in the fact that they retain their spots throughout life. They are like a little white-tailed fawn that never loses its, its spots. The bucks have a tendency to grow fair size. I've taken some bucks that weighed right at about 300 pounds or so, mature bucks. The females, eh, probably in about that 125, 140 pound on the hoof kind of thing, maybe a little bit bigger sometimes, and kind of depending on food supply, sometimes a little bit smaller as well. They retain spots, so their hides are absolutely beautiful throughout the year. The venison off of these deer is 
second to none. <clears throat> I don't care how you prepare it. Even if you happen to take an old mature buck, this really makes a, a difference. Uh, well, you know what? It doesn't make a difference. Because when you get right down to it, axis deer is axis deer is axis deer. No matter how big or old that animal is, it's going to be really good to eat. They have a very nice mild flavor that's very close to range-fed beef. They have a tendency to have a little bit of marbling in them, so they have a tendency from that respect of not being quite as dry as, as venison is concerned. No matter how you prepare it, whether you prepare it as a, <laughs> as a grilled steak or fried steak or roast, uh, ground meat in terms of hamburgers and all kinds of casseroles, it is out of this world good to eat. The bucks, a lot of times as a year old buck, they'll have, have uh, nothing more than spikes, one, five, six inch spikes on each side. Now they can have more points on per side, but the typical Axis to your rack is three points per side. A main beam with a brow time coming up just above the pedicle going forward and then kind of coming up. And then about two thirds of the way up of that main beam, there's a, the caudal point, if you will, a, a second point that can sometimes be fairly long, sometimes be fairly short, sometimes even be absent. The antlers have a tendency to be kind of lyre shaped in the more barrel to a lyre type of shape. Big bucks will have 30 inch plus main beams per side. As they get older, they have a tendency to uh, kind of flatten out a little bit, not palmate, but flatten. There's so much fun to hunt. During the springtime is their primary rut. Now I say that because of the fact that any herd of white the axis deer, no matter where they exist, they're always gonna be some bucks and hard antler. The Because they're from that temperate zone close to the uh, equator, Axis deer really don't do like our white-tailed deer do, and the fact that they can produce antlers throughout the year, and as it works out, generally, May and June seem to be the kind of the peak periods, however, when the majority of, of bucks have ant or in hard antler, if you will, and when the majority of the breeding season is going on. But they do breed year-round because there's no reason for where they're from to have a fawn in January, June, October because the nutritional level is always pretty much the same. So they have a, a, a almost a year-round breeding season, or they do have year. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> they do have a year-round breeding season. But the peak, as I said, has a tendency to be a little bit in in June, May, and June, which we're approaching right now. If you're going to notice I'm doing this from here at my home, and, and occasionally you're going to have air conditioning going, coming and going, so if you hear a little strange noise occasionally, you'll know kind of what it is, kind of a louder hum. Just a little cool front has passed through, but it's still fairly warm for us this time of the year. Hunting these axis deer during this time frame, the bucks have a tendency to do what they call preach, which is kind of like our bucks making scrapes. The difference is our whitetail bucks. The difference is an axis buck will stand up on his hind leg, reach up as high as he can with his head and preorbital glands and rub a spot up high. And I guess this is kind of a way of, of saying, hey, I can reach up higher than you can when it comes to the bucks. The bucks during that breeding season too have kind of what they call a roar. Now it's not really a, a roar, but uh, it is kind of close to it's like Whoa, kind of thing, and that's totally different from what it sounds like. You can go on the internet and you just type in white axis deer making a roar, and it'll give you a little bit better 
idea of what they what they do sound like. They also have a tendency to have a the does do to have a little bit of a high pitched bark when they're get excited or when they're trying to, to get somebody's attention, meaning somebody in that or some another deer in that herd. So they have a tendency to be very vocal, particularly right now. And I mentioned herds there because I've seen access deer go into herds as many as, as three or four hundred animals in some of these open areas where there are lots of access deer. So you know, you're hunting anywhere from a, a single male that you hear off in the distance making noise to, to the point of where you're hunting herds. And it's a lot of times those old bigger bucks will be about themselves for a little while, but as they, the breeding season starts, they're going to try to form little harem kind of things here and there. And they may move from harem to harem as well, too. But that's the best time as far as I'm concerned is to hunt them like in late May and June by then for the most part really everything else in terms of, of hunting is pretty well closed in North America with the exception of black bear and this year with the COVID-19 thing going on so many of the states and provinces ended up closing black bear hunting to non-residents. With Texas totally different deal. We have a lot of ranches as I mentioned with Greg Simons with the wildlife system has some of the most finest premier axis deer hunting free range there is Right now is a good time to do it. So if you're interested, get in touch with him. When it comes to hunting licenses, you simply need a license, a hunting license from Texas. Non-resident if you're a non-resident. But there are also some like three to five day non-resident licenses that you can hunt. Axis deer are not considered a game animal in Texas. They're considered an exotic, meaning they're considered to be the property of the landowner whose property they're on. So you always, of course, need permission to go hunt on those areas. Hunting guns. Almost anything that'll take a big old whitetail buck or a mule deer buck is certainly sufficient for taking an axis buck. Same thing with archer equipment or, or crossbow or, or handgun. If, if you'd like me, I really enjoy the handguns. Over the years, I've taken access deer with a great variety of, of, of firearms, but primarily the same ones that I would use for whitetail deer, meaning when I hunt with revolvers, it's been 44 mags or 454, Casul, occasionally a, a 480, or, and occasionally another caliber as well, too. And of course, I love the Ruger revolvers, both the, the single shot, the Black Hawks, and the Red Hawks, although I have to admit I really enjoy the single action a little bit more than I do the double action. When it comes to muzzleloaders, I've shot a lot of axes deer in years past with a 50 caliber muzzleloader using a Hornady uh, 250 grain SST Sabo. Uh, that seems to be an extremely good bullet in terms of taking that animal down quickly and humanely and also being very, very accurate. With rifles, I've shot them everything from 223s, although I consider that a little bit on the light end, unless you know exactly what you're going to do and where you're going to shoot them and how to shoot them and, and uh, can place that bullet very precisely where it needs to be. But the majority of my hunting has probably been done with a 270, a 280, 7x57, same as a 275 Rigby. 300 Win Mag, 300 H&H, which I also like, the 0405 Winchester, 370. Uh, sorry, a 375 Ruger, which to me is kind of the one particular caliber that's out there and round that uh, you can hunt the world with, and particularly if you're using the 250 grain Hornady GMX loads or the dangerous game loads of 300 grains. And 
That 375 Ruger is just, just tough to beat. Uh, love it beyond anything else. Lately been shooting a fair amount too with, with the 280 actually improved and probably will try to do an access deer later this year on uh, hunting with with Greg Simons with that. But uh, of course it's got all these rifles are gonna be topped with Trigicon scopes. I, <clears throat> I love the points and just gotten some of the new Huron scopes. They do not have the, um, the, the, the little center lit reticle that the that, uh, point does, but I'll tell you what, those those Huron, Trigicon, Trigicon Hurons, if you will, are unbelievable scopes. Uh, they've got like a, a, a reticle set inside, and it's called uh, the Hunter's Zero, where you sight it in at 100 yards, and then there's stadia wire that if you're using like a, something that shoots out of velocity of about 26, 2800 feet, that you can just kind of come down to the next wire for 200, the next wire down for 300, next wire down for 400, and the last wire down for 500. So spend a little time on the range making sure that works for you. But the little bit I've had a chance to play with that particular here on scope by Trigicon, really been impressed with it in terms of the light gathering ability and and how accurate it has done for me at those different yardages using that Hunter Zero. Axis deer come at such a great time. As I said, you can hunt them year-round, but this springtime is just an ideal time to do it. Now, if you're going to hunt in the springtime in Texas, you're going to have to deal with uh, chiggers. Jim Zumbo, a very dear old friend of mine, has often said, I'd rather fight and face a, a mad mother grizzly bear with cubs than I would chiggers. Down here, when I was growing up, we called them red bugs. They're little bitty, almost microscopic bugs that'll, that'll kind of dig into you. They leave uh, some uh, feces and that kind of thing behind, crawl out, and the itch that they create is lasts for days. Now, to counteract that, what I do and have had extremely good luck with is, is going to a local sporting goods store and, and buying Sawyer's uh, insect repellent or per, that's got permethrin in it and spraying my clothes. You only put it on your clothes. Don't put it on your body, but you, you spray it on your clothes, on your boots, on your socks, pants, shirt, cap, whatever else you're wearing, even on your underwear. Let it dry real good. And once you do that, you won't have a problem with ticks. I've, I've put permethrin on my clothes when I've hunted in some of the tickiest country in, in North America and some of the worst fever tick country there is in the tall grass of Africa. And never so much have gotten a, 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 even a single bite. Hunting here in the States where we've had, uh, particularly some of the parts of Texas Hill Country, where we have a tremendous number of, of chiggers, when everybody else who is not wearing clothes sprayed down with Sawyer's permethrin, was just literally eaten up by chiggers. I had not so much had a single bite. So when you get in touch with Greg Simons and say, hey, Greg, I'd really like to come hunt Axis deer, kind of ask about what he suggests that you bring and what gun he's, or caliber he might suggest. And, and then don't forget to get some of that permethrin to carry with you. Now, if you put it on your clothes, and it's good for at least six washings. I've tested it. That's what it does. So you can put it on your clothes, 
And you can take it to six times of being washed, generally about four or five. It's, it's an inexpensive product that works so good. What I generally do after about the fourth washing, I'll start spraying it back on just to be on the safe side because I can tell you there's nothing that itches as bad or as long for days and days as, as a really bad chigger bite. I want to talk a little bit about Audad and, and maybe get into some of the Nilgai hunting that we have further south. But before I do, let, let's get a few words from either um, Corey Mason with DSC or maybe possibly um, Richard Cheatham with the DSC Foundation. And after that, we'll be right back. There are all kinds of different threats that are, are facing us right now. What do you consider to be one of the... the one of the worst ones or one of the ones we have to really be most careful of at this moment i think the international threat and and it's that's i know that's an interesting comment for people that are sitting in the united states of america um, but there's a massive move internationally to attack trophy hunting and to attack all forms of hunting. But obviously, when you when you stick that trophy moniker on there, you can you can you can evoke a lot of emotion with people. But there's a massive international threat by the same people that we deal with all the time, NGOs primarily, that have gained influence with governments and policymaking organizations like IUCN and like CITES. Uh, and, and the, the effectiveness of those groups uh, and, and what they're trying to accomplish on the international stage will have and has had immediate impact on, on the United States and will continue to. What's happening in the UK with this effort to, to ban imports, uh, uh, make no mistake, it, it is coming to the shores of the United States. And in fact, it's been here for several years. The, the success of that program in the UK, if in fact the, the parliament uh, decides to ban the imports, will embolden others over here. They will, you will begin to see more and more uh, legislation uh, attempting to do the same thing. You'll have a fight between states' rights and federal government rights, and we can all hope that the federal government laws uh, preempt those state laws as they have. Um, but make no mistake, uh, this international battle and the bleed-over effect is, is the biggest threat to hunting. What can we as individuals or members of DSC or the DSC Foundation, what can we do to kind of hit off some of this or you know, with, counteract it? Sure. Well, the, I think the biggest thing is if you have, if you have, uh, 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 if you have contact with legislators, if you have influence with policymakers, um, let them hear you. And the other thing is we're all ambassadors for hunting. I mean, you're a great ambassador for hunting. Um, you have to know how to tell the story. You have to know the underlying facts. You have to know how successful the North American model of wildlife conservation is. You have to kind of understand what that is as well. And we need we need an educated base of, 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 of hunters. And I'm not talking about just trophy hunters or meat hunters. Hunters need to be able to tell our story and tell it effectively. So it's one of the things we're heavily involved in with the messaging campaign is to put those positive messages out, let people see what hunters' dollars are doing and what hunters are doing, and let them understand that, that when we say conservation through hunting, it's not just a phrase. It's a way of life, and it's a fact. Uh, and that great 70% that neither hunts nor hates hunting um, needs to be educated. They're the, ultimately the ones that are going to vote um, and, 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 and nudge policymakers one way or the other. Can we write letters? Can we do emails, make phone calls? Uh, 
spend money. I mean, that's, it always comes down to the fact that we need to be financed, and through DSC Foundation, we can do some things, but we need help there as well, too, in Absolutely. terms of dollars. Absolutely. And one of the, from the foundation standpoint, what, what our, our job primarily is to fund conservation, education, and hunter advocacy projects to support the core mission of Dallas Safari Club. So I, I, absolutely, that takes money to do it. And we've actually we've actually done a really good job with the funding that we've had, so much so that we think, gosh, if we, you know, if we could raise another million dollars, if we could get two million, just think of what we could do there. We've, 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 we've got a very effective messaging campaign, and all the videos can be found either on the DSC Media, the YouTube channel, or the DSC Foundation website. Uh, but but actually putting our money where our mouths are, yes, uh, raising more money and then identifying really worthwhile projects, anti-poaching projects, scientific research, uh, population survey, uh, guzzler projects out in West Texas that benefits not just desert bighorn and mule deer, but every other animal that needs to drink water out there. Uh, but identifying those projects so that people we can when we when we go say to the that great unwashed in the middle of the great undecided in the middle. This is what we do. We can prove it. We can say, I've got a video I want to show you. I've got a story that Larry Washoon wrote about a project that he's working on. Let me show you exactly what, what we, how we back up what we say. And so letter writing, uh, again, uh, 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 pleading with policymakers, getting involved in those policymaking decisions and expressing your voice probably is even more important than writing a letter to your congressman or representative because... At that point, they may have made their mind up. I'm not being fatalistic here, right. but but, uh, but taking an opportunity to sway public opinion, to 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 challenge the conventional wisdom that hunting is bad for wildlife, uh, that many many seem to have adopted, uh, uh, by educating future voters and policymakers, I think is critical. And and again, we have an education program, we have an advocacy program. And then we have a boots on the ground program with conservation projects that 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 lives and dies off of fundraising and money. And so the more support we get from the hunting community and actually the non-hunting community that that believes in wilderness, pure pristine wilderness and pure pristine free unencumbered wildlife, uh, which is at the core of our <laughs> of our exactly. yes, sir. then I think the 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 the, the, the easier it's going to be for us to move the needle and influence people. How can they become more involved with, uh, I know with DSC, but in terms of learning more about the DSC Foundation, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, the first and foremost, I would look at our Facebook page, the DSC Foundation Facebook page. We're very active on social media, both Facebook and Instagram. Uh, not only do we share our content, um, really, really good content designed to educate people, but we, um, every single day, we're scouring the Internet to see these these new and interesting stories. And Larry, you and I have been, both both of us are familiar with the DSC Frontline Foundation, and I just Very noticed much, yes. an hour ago uh, that a, a, a anti-poaching game scout in Botswana was killed. In oh, an no. And so I, I, was, I was just on the phone with, with the president of DSC Frontline Foundation saying, hey, I've, I wanted to make you aware of this because it's a potential uh, 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 case where the Frontline Foundation might be involved. That's that's what I do every day between 5 and 7 o'clock in the morning is scour the internet and try to share those stories so that the people that do follow us can be up to date. 
No wonder you're tired sometimes. <laughs> it's a perpetual Now we're talking state. three, four hour days. And I know it goes on seven days a week kind of thing. But no, that actually the easiest thing for people to do to help us is to is to is to help us spread the message, and that means go yes, on sir. Facebook and share it and uh, share. Uh, yes, sir. And it's 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 one thing to like it. Um, it's another thing to put it in front of your followers, who then some of them will then put it in front of their followers, and and uh, uh, we we play the we play by the rules that Facebook lays down in terms of spreading our message. It's still a very very effective way to do it, and and for every hunter has a whole bunch of non-hunters that they're Facebook friends with, um, and those we're trying to educate the hunters to be better ambassadors, but. My goodness, we're trying to rep- to, to educate the, the non-hunting public as well. So. Thank you all so much for what you do at DSC. DSC is, is the world's finest outdoor hunting conservation organization there is, period. There none that there there's some that are similar, but when it comes right down to it, to me, they, they just don't quite compare to what DSC does. Great, great organization. If you want to learn more, and I know that you do, please go to www.biggame.org. That's biggame.org. Just so happens on the website there. Also, if you go to uh, Camp Talk Online, I do a a fairly regular blog there, usually a little short blog about some of the things that kind of been going on. Hopefully some of them will we'll maybe give you a little bit of information and some of them will cause a smile and some of them will make you want to go get ready for the hunting seasons that are coming up. We talked about access deer during the first part of this. We really want to go to, to the Audad. Uh, sometimes they're called barber sheep, but actually they're not a sheep. They're not a goat. They're probably more closely related to the tur that you find in, in uh, parts of Asia. Originally, the Audad came from the Barbary Coast, the high mountains of the Barbary Coast of, of Northern Africa, uh, in the country of Chad and, and maybe some of those other adjoining com- countries there. They were brought in here to the States in about the 1930s and did extremely well, the, both on high fence places. And of course, they escaped very quickly and quickly populated different parts of the, the rocky areas of, of the Texas Hill Country and the North northern part of the state and then all the way up into the Paladura Canyon which is a beautiful canyon up in the Panhandle of Texas and they've done extremely well out in West Texas out in the Trans-Pecos area there that we call Trans-Pecos because it sits west of the, of the Pecos River down and close to what's also sometimes called the Big Bend area. Tremendous audad populations in those areas. I've had it out there with Greg Simons on some property and Oh, gosh, I think I ended up shooting the 80th mature ram that we saw. It was just a phenomenal hunt, uh, very much like hunting desert bighorn sheep, but you see a lot of them. And if you mess up one in terms of stock, pretty good chance there may be one on the next next mountain range over. And so lots and lots of fun to hunt. The Dad is a, an interesting animal, kind of stands higher on his shoulders than he does his hips. He's got a mane that runs down from the point of his jaw to the bottom of his chest. And then he has what we call shaps, long hair on both his uh, front legs that kind of extends down almost to the ground. Uh, they have a tendency to be kind of a light tannish brown as they get older. The older males 
tend to be a little bit darker in color, almost have a reddish tinge to them. They run in herds, and as I've said, you can, I've seen as many as, oh gosh, lying like axis deer. I've seen as many as probably 300 odd ad sheep in one group. Their, their breeding season is a little bit different than, uh, than a lot of different places as well, too. And there are times, just like with, as you would expect, or maybe you read about hunting bighorn sheep where the rams are off by themselves and the females and the, and the, uh, or the ewes and the young are off in a, in a different herd. We got after one big old ram not too long ago. Jackie Murphy was the, the guide for wildlife systems out in West Texas. A great, great guy. We'd call him Mr. Odd Dad. Uh, there's probably nobody out there that loves hunting Odd Dad any more than Jackie does. And, and I doubt that there are many people out there that even know anything close to the amount that, that Jackie does when it comes to these Odd Dad. We put on a long, long stalk. Absolutely a fantastic crawling on your hands and knees on sharp rocks, trying to hide, get up to a point where you're almost going to be where you think you want to be. And here comes a mule deer doe, because that area out there also has mule deer, desert mule deer, and some white-tailed deer, and elk as well, too. And if you have Elena as well. <laughs> Crawled up this spot, and we're only about 50 yards from where we're going to be able to see this, this really big ram. And got stopped there by a little... By a little Mule deer doe. Uh, thankfully, she didn't spook, and we just kind of took her time, bided her time, and let her walk away. And when she finally did, we continued on and got up there to where we were just kind of hanging on with one hand and kind of peering around the, the rocky bluff on the other side. And lo and behold, there's not one ram there. There's about 60 different rams there. Moved around a little bit, trying not to dislodge any rocks and thankfully have the wind in our favor and, and the sun at our back. And I mentioned earlier that I use a fair amount of permanone when I hunt axis deer because of the, um, because of the, the insect problems that keep occurring in those areas. One of the things I failed to mention is that I found out that most of these animals have a pretty good sense of smell, not a whole lot different from white-tailed deer, quite frankly. And, so I learned too that a lot of times, even after I put on the uh, Sarius Permanone, I'll spray my clothing down and everything else that I've got with me with uh, Texas raised hunting products, Scent Guardian. Now, the, some will tell you you don't need to play the wind when you wear it. And you know what? It's probably pretty close to right. But I'm an old time hunter who for years has always played the wind whenever possible. And kind of the way I do. I spray down with uh, Scent Guardian and then not that I don't trust it, it's just those years of, of, <laughs> of playing the wind. Although I can tell you that we're up there amongst those rams and, and the closest ones were probably about 40, 50 yards. Finally got around up on top of this little bluff to where we could kind of get a little bit better look at what all was out there. And while we're laying there, all of a sudden the uh, the wind switched and it was like they had no earthly idea we were there. It, it was coming in our face, the wind was, and got up on top where we could see all those rams and it switched directly to almost right blowing our backside toward the, the rams and they didn't pass a darn bit of attention. We stayed there probably for about 30, 40 minutes and finally got a look at what we thought was pretty much all of them. And there was one ram in there that was probably close to 30 inches, but the vast majority of the others were from that 26 to 28 inches of horn. Good, good, solid, odd ad rams. But 
Jackie prides himself on not taking anything below 30 inches. So I kind of looked at that one. He just kind of pointed back at me and said, no, no way. We're not taking that one. But we sat there long enough to where we had an opportunity to look at all those sheep. It was an amazing thing. And I call them sheep. All those odd dad. Uh, every one of them was absolutely beautiful. And, and probably by the time you hear this and pay attention to this, what I'm talking about here, those rams will probably be 30, 32 inches of, of horn length. Great, great rams. We backed off there and, and put on stock on several others as well. We were there doing a, a, a TV show for DSC's Trade on the Hunter's Moon. And, and actually, you can see the show on our YouTube channel or uh, you can go find that by going to uh, trailingthehuntersmoon.com and, and it'll point you in the right direction as to where you can see some of the shows that we have on YouTube. But you can also go to pursuituptv.com and I know that that show about all that is there so you can actually see some of the things we did. Came down to the last day, literally the last day, last two hours. We're driving from one little range to another, trying to get a quick look at that last range before the last moments of the hunt, and drove by this almost a water hole. It was, it, it was kind of a water hole. Let's put it this way: it had been a water hole. It was dried up, and looked off on the hillside, and sure enough, Jackie saw two rams. I got out, and I had a Ruger number one in 300 H and H mag, and I was shooting uh, 180 grain Hornady uh, Interbond bullets out of it and, and their commercial load and it was, it was covered with a Trijicon AccuPoint. I'd shot it earlier and I knew where that gun shot out to about four or five hundred yards if it became necessary but my thoughts always are try to get within a hundred yards or less. One of those rams popped up and I could see that it was an older ram simply because I could see the color. He was a little bit darker in color but I could also see his horns. Now his horns were polished on top like any other horned critter that has horns that kind of come up and go back and maybe come down. They spend a lot of time bumping their heads against trees, against brush, sometimes against rocks. They spend a fair amount of time fighting. When the process is so done, they polish those horns just above where they come out of their head to a slick looking surface, if you will. And through that Trijicon scope, there wasn't any doubt this was an old ram. Got a good solid rest. I actually just had gotten out of the truck and came around the backside and, and, and was using the backside of the truck as a, as a blind and also as a place to, to get a good solid rest, which we can do in Texas and on private property. And that's where we were. And shot and I saw the animal shudder and as fast as I could I tried to load another round into it and usually I'm pretty darn fast in loading those Ruger number ones and but I'll tell you just as I reloaded and he was running up the hill and I was getting ready to shoot he fell down and uh, I got on him and kept that Trijicon on for a while and made certain he wasn't going to get up because our dad can be very tough to bring down they have their skin is not that thick but it's very very resilient type of thing their muscles are very dense their bones are extremely stout and it can take a fair amount to to, to put an animal down of the of that odd hat species but this one didn't move so we got up there and started looking at them and the closer we got the bigger this sheep got again i'm calling the sheep but is the, the odd hat got 
went up there and as, as we got to the all-dad side, Jackie goes, oh my goodness. He said, this thing is, is a whole lot bigger. He said, I thought it might have been about 30 or so when I first saw it, but oh my gosh, I think this ram's going to go at least 32 or, or maybe even better. And normally, I don't measure a whole lot of animals, but you know, sometimes it's fun to, to, to measure those animals. What he scored, I have no earthly idea. But I can tell you that both the left horn and the right horn were 32 and a half inches, which is, over the years, I've shot a fair number of odd dad. I used to hunt them a lot years and years ago in parts of the Texas Hill Country and a few other places. And the biggest ram I'd ever shot in the years past was one that was 30 and a little bit on one side. He had a lot of mass on him, and that was one of the beauties of, of this ram that I shot with, with Jackie there with Wildlife Systems and the fact that he had a little over 13-inch bases, which is a good, solid base for an odd dad or or most any of the, the sheep and sheep-like species. I was thrilled. We, we took some photographs and got him skinned out and got him taken back. And Those old rams can be pretty tough to eat, but they've got a great flavor. So we took what meat there was, there was took all the meat actually, and, and I brought it back and kind of ground it up three or four different times through a hand grinder that took a little bit of, a, of turning the crank and uh, kind of mixed in some, some beef tallow with it, some suet with it, if you will. And, had some of that for supper here a couple nights ago, and, and we're about out of it. Maybe it's about time to go hunt all that again. I, I, I knew that young sheep, all dad sheep, were, were good to eat, but the old ones were always really, really tough. But by double grinding and almost triple grinding this meat into hamburger, it turned out to be pretty darn good. I, I'm so good that I really want to go shoot another one just to go for the food value of him. But I had an absolutely great time. If you've never hunted all dad sheep, or all dad rams, by all means, get in touch with, with Greg Simons again. Greg has the finest country there is to be hunted anywhere in Texas when it comes to all dad. And his guys like Jackie Murphy and a, and a couple others that work for Greg on a full-time basis, those guys know, they know all dad. They know where to hunt him, they know how to hunt him, and they'll put you on a really good one. And, uh, and they won't let you shoot a little one either. I found out I got called over called off several of them by Jackie and no 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 not that one we're gonna wait for a big one and as it worked out I really appreciated the fact that we did but all that hunting can be done any time of the year again you can get a hunting license that is a non-resident license if you're from out of state you can fly into San Angelo or El Paso and rent a car and drive to where those ranches are out there in, in, in two to three hours kind of thing depending on where you fly into and, and uh, you can get a uh, just a, a, an exotic type license. It's a whole lot less than a non-resident full-time hunting license. So it, it's one of those things that are they're available year-round. And, and guys like Jackie Murphy doing the the uh, <laughs> the, the guiding, and you know he's he's looking for that next client because he loves the audad and he loves to hunt them. And one of the other species I want to just address very quickly for just a little bit is the, the Nilgai antelope. And again, Wildlife Systems has access to the finest Nilgai antelope hunting there is to be had, not just in Texas, but in the world. Nilgai too came from part northern parts of, of India. Uh, there are still a few there in some of those native areas, but essentially they, they really can't be hunted. Sometimes they're shot for uh, because a, a depredation type of thing where they're eating people's crops. But 
for the most part, there is no hunting in India, and there is no hunt. Excuse me for for the Nilgai antelope, sometimes called the blue bull of India. I can't remember. I want to say they're the the third or fourth largest of all the antelope species behind. Uh, I think they're the third behind the the elan, the the roan antelope, and I think the the Nilgai is, is the third largest. Now they're interesting in the fact that they stand very tall at the shoulders, much lower at the hips. The cows are kind of a tannish brown color. The young bulls are kind of a tannish brown color. And what makes them unique is they have a beard about halfway up the neck as what does a turkey. Now, as these bulls mature, they change from that brownish, fawnish type color to a really dark steel gray, almost black color. In terms of horns, they're not real big. A really good mature Nilgai bull will have horns that are anywhere from about eight to nine inches of length, kind of like a Rocky Mountain goat. They're kind of triangular in shape and they're not real long. But occasionally you'll find one, they'll go somewhere in terms of 10 and 11 inches long and anything you can find, say 11 inches long or longer, we're talking about a superb animal. Years ago hunting with Greg on one of the ranches down in that what we refer to as a King Ranch area. I shot one that was almost 12 inches long. But that was the exception. These animals to bring that one up are extremely tough. They're tough to bring down. The the one with the longest horn that I shot, I shot with a 416 Rigby single shot with the Hornady ammo. Hit him absolutely perfect on the shoulder at about 75 yards. Hit that bull, he showed no signs of being hit. Took off at a, at a run left no blood trail, and it just so happened uh, Blake Barnett was my cameraman. We were actually doing a show back then for the old North American Hunter TV show. I knew it hit him. I, I, I knew it hit him hard, but there wasn't any blood. So I finally was able, because of the sandy, kind of sandy soil there, I could pick up a fresh track, follow this track about 400 yards, and at about 401 yards, I found a speck of blood. At 405 yards, I found where the, the Neil guy had gone down, and uh, absolute huge. He, he probably weighed, I'm guessing, eight nine hundred pounds on the hoof. He was in, in his past his prime, but had some really good range conditions those two years prior to the time that I shot him, and because of that, was really great shape. They're kind of like axis deer in the fact that they're extremely good to eat. Uh, it's, it's an animal that I would hunt every possible chance I got just simply for the mate. Be it if you got a chance to shoot a big bull, a young bull, a cow, a calf, whatever. I would definitely go for those just simply because of the meat. They're great for steaks, great for roast, make fantastic ground meat, throw a little bit a little bit of soot or something else in there with it, kind of give them a little bit of a little bit more moisture to it and it's one of those meals that you'll prepare that you'll go, oh my gosh, I can't wait to do this the next time. And, you know, when can I go Neil guy hunting again? Shot that one that I talked about with a 416 Rigby. I've shot them since then. And I should add that number of the ranches that, that Greg hunts and some of the other ranches down in the, that southern part of the state will not let you hunt Neil guy unless you're shooting a minimum of a 338 wind mag. 
and several of them require 375 H&H or 375 Ruger. These animals can be extremely tough to bring down, as I mentioned. Years ago, I had a chance to hunt them with, with Tony Knight, who came up with MK85 muzzleloader, and Jim Zumbo and I, and we hunted down in uh, I'm part of the old El South Ranch, which sits way south in the very southern tip of Texas. And as it worked out, Tony was a fantastic shot. God bless him. Sure do miss him, I'll tell you. He was, he was a great hunting partner and a great individual. But Tony shot one in, in, in about 75 yards, and uncharacteristically, the animal just went whop, fell to the ground, uh, didn't even kick. Zumbo shot one uh, a whole lot farther than I think Jim would have ever shot had it not been for Tony saying, okay, you can hit him, you can hit him, hold, hold so-and-so, he'll do this, do that. Jim shot, and at about 250 yards, this Neil guy that weighed right at 800 pounds just pitched over on his nose. Day after that, I had a shot at about 75, 80 yards. Hit this nil guy perfectly low in the in the uh, in the vitals. He took off running, and we followed him. And I put another shot into him a little bit later, and at about 100 yards. And then a little bit later, put another shot into him about 100 yards, and finally ended up having to borrow a, a rifle, a 30 out six rifle that uh, one of the ranch hands had. And, tracked this animal down and, and shot him. When we did the, what well, I call necropsies, or when we uh, took the, the visceral out or gutted him, if you will, my first shot had gone right squarely through both lungs and hit his heart. And yet this animal kept going on and on and on and on and on. Like I said, that can be extremely tough, but they're fun to hunt and you can hunt them year round. Their eyesight is phenomenal. They're hard to bring down as I mentioned they don't have huge horns on their heads they're really good to eat the the leather that you can get from their hides and their hides really make nice flat hides because of the the dark steel gray bluish color that they have but the leather from their hides too is extremely tough and durable so that animal serves a, a lot of different uh, in a lot of different capacities when it comes to hunting Greg Simons, as I said, with Wildlife Systems is the place that uh, you really want to go to. Greg has several of those ranches down there that uh, where they were initially introduced, and, and kind of depends on who you talk to, how they got there. Some people say that some of the managers and the owners of the King Ranch bought the first nail guy from a traveling circus that uh, came through little town of Raymondville many years ago and released them so that uh, hopefully they would produce in numbers and produce uh, meat for the, for the ranch hands because up to that point the the ranch hands they were going out and taking a beef periodically to didn't have refrigeration so they they took a fair number of, of, of steers or cows and calves throughout the year to, to feed themselves and their family and with bringing in the Neil guy they hoped that they could get them onto those and they did that population has grown tremendously. They're affected by drought and occasionally will large, lose large numbers due to drought. And because of where they're a, from, a very temperate area in India, they don't have very long hair. So they don't do really well when we have that occasional really freak ice storm or cold weather that sets in in that lower country for five or six days and temperature doesn't get above freezing and it freezes everything and in that situation we'll lose quite a few animals too but 
for the most part, we're into a cycle where we have a tremendous amount of Nilgai available. Hunting is so much fun. It's relatively inexpensive. As I mentioned, the meat is outstanding. And you just got to get in touch with Greg Simons to... Uh, to set up the hunt for them or for Audad or for Axis and, and come see us here in Texas. Uh, we're about to pass some of this COVID thing and uh, it's a great way to do some social distancing when you come down. So look forward to catching up again with everybody next week. No telling what our conversation will be about. If, if you've got something you'd like for us to talk about or have me talk about, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. You can go to my Facebook pages, either Larry Wysen or Larry Wysen Outdoors. Uh, you can go to, to, to uh, trailingthehuntersmoon.com and, and leave a message there with me too or, or so many different places to get in touch with me. And let me hear what you think about the podcast. Let me hear about what you'd like to hear about in future podcasts. So until next time, we'll see you around the campfire, either the virtual one or hopefully the, the real one here for too very long. And we'll be back with you right here next week. DSC's Untamed Heritage is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, conservation, education, protecting hunters' rights. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Calmest Calls Made. Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas Raised Hunting Products, The Scent Gods, www.trailingthehuntersmoon.com, the Hunter Conservations' website. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.